0: Well, this morning, I would ask that you would open up your Bibles to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, the third of the Gospels in the New Testament. We are in Luke chapter 1. Now, some of you just got really nervous because you know that we finished the Gospel of Mark not long ago, and you think that we're going to start a 60-week sermon series in the Gospel of Luke now. Uh, I think that would be very profitable, but that's not what we're doing this morning. We are in the Gospel of Luke in chapters 1 and 2 looking at the songs of Advent that take place there. Uh, There are five songs, announcements, that we're going to look at during the course of Advent. Uh, We're going to follow something thematically that is something like the order of the songs of our reading uh, in um, the lighting of the Advent candles. We're going to follow the hope. And peace and joy and love themes through these. So, we're going to take them just a little bit out of order. This morning, we're going to begin with Zechariah, and then we'll move on to a multitude of heavenly hosts, and then go back to Mary, then way forward to Simeon at the end of Luke chapter 2, and then end with the announcement of the angel of the Lord to Mary that the son is, or to the shepherds that the son has come, uh, that the king is here. Uh, The thing about all of these songs is how thick they are with the language of the prophets. That's the the language of the scriptures. These angels and these men and these women are are run through with the words so that it seeps out of their lips. Their songs uh, would rightly be called prophecy because isn't, isn't prophecy after all a revelation of God's own word? And here... These angels and men and women are, are proclaiming and remembering and rejoicing in God's own word. How better to speak like a prophet than to remember God's own words? In this morning's passage, this is particularly the case. It's, it's like in, in Zechariah, here in Luke chapter 1, verse 67 and following. It's like someone has given Zechariah an assignment in a poetry class to write a poem. But he's not just given the assignment to write a poem. He's told they can only write the entire poem using phrases from other places in Scripture. And then he goes at it. And there's a number of times that, that you're not sure which place he got it because he's just grabbing a theme that is so often repeated in the Scriptures. So... The song that we have before us is really a recitation of the prophecies of God that have been rehearsed for the ages. Let's read it together. We're gonna, uh, follow, You can follow along beginning at Luke chapter 1, verse 67, and the song that you find there. And his father, Zechariah, the father of John, who would be called John the Baptist, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, "'Blessed be the Lord God of Israel,' For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy, the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Heavenly Father, light shines on us today. Your word illumines the reality of the great sunrise, which is the coming of the sun that dwell among us. We thank you for this announcement, this rejoicing over the birth of a son whose very purpose was to announce the coming of the sun. We thank you for your word. I pray that the poetry, the song... The melody that we can hear and the harmonies that are so consonant with the rest of the scriptures as they, as they weave together this beautiful harmony. Lord, we pray that we would rejoice, that we would enjoy hearing hope. And that, that hearing hope and rejoicing in hope, we ourselves would become partakers of hope, that would become intimate knowers of salvation. I pray that you would do this miraculous deed in hearts like ours this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a beautiful song. It's beautiful. And and it gets more and more beautiful the, the more time that you spend getting to know the context of the Scriptures, both the context of the whole of the Bible, so that when you hear little phrases, a horn of salvation for us, and you, you realize that that's actually grabbing phrases from the Scriptures and, and bringing them in. And so we're, we're reading more than just this song. We're reading the whole of the prophecies of Scripture with this song. But also, this song becomes beautiful as we read it in the context in which it was written. The context in that it's written is actually found at the beginning of Luke. If you flip back a page or two there to Luke chapter 1, verse 5, You see the context. The birth of John the Baptist is foretold. It says in verse 5, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. What we find out is Zechariah is a priest. His wife descended from Aaron, both of this priestly line. And Elizabeth is barren. Zechariah has, has lived his life waiting for a child, and no, no child has come. And yet they've been faithful, they've been righteous in the commandments and statues of the Lord. And here's Zechariah, faithful again. In verse 9, we find him burning incense in the temple. He's serving in the temple, as was his commission as a priest. And an angel appears to him. It appeared to him in an angel in verse 11 of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And of course, Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell on him. And the announcement that comes is, your wife will bear a son. Because that's good news for Zechariah. He's he's waited a lifetime to hear something like that. He just didn't expect a birth announcement from an angel. That's all. So he's afraid and he's excited and cause for rejoicing and praise. But Zechariah's response was not rejoicing and praise. But rather, if you look over it in verse 18, says Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Friends, that's not a statement of rejoicing. It's a statement of unbelief. The the angel later confirms this. This is a response of unbelief. In fact, the angel in verse 19 stands up. You can kind of see him rise up to his full height and says, I am Gabriel. (laughs) Right? I stand in the presence of God. How Shall you know this? Right? I stand in the presence of God. And here's what the angel then says. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. And Zechariah was silent. Nine months of silent. Unable to speak. And then we Turn. A number of amazing things happen that we'll look at in coming weeks, and by the time we get to verse 57, just before our song, there's a few things that happen. Beautifully, nine months later, we've got a boy, a baby boy. Elizabeth gives birth, and and they ask him, what is his name going to be? And and she says, John, of course. They say, well, that's nobody's name, John, in your family line. Grab one of the names from your family line. What are you doing saying John? And and that's actually in accordance with the angel's words. Evidently, Zechariah, along the way, had written down and communicated with, with, uh, with Elizabeth, and she uh, had believed the angel. And, and so, when the, the birth comes and she names the child, she names him John, and Zechariah then comes, and they're saying, Is that really the name for this kid? Really? And he says, Yeah, yeah. He writes it down. What will the name be? And he writes down, the name is going to be John. And when he does that, and he writes that according to the instruction of the angel that had visited him nine months before his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosened and he began to bless God. And what follows is a song of praise. There are a few themes in this song. This morning we're going to look at three of those themes. And the first theme is this, that the Lord... This is what Zechariah sees. This is what he puts together poetically and beautifully in exaltation of praise. The Lord is exercising his strength to redeem. He's flexing his muscles for redemption. Here's how Zechariah begins. Look at verse 68 with me. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. I thought it was interesting. You know, wouldn't it be? what What a beautiful story if we were to turn this whole thing into a movie, to have a story all about Zechariah and following him and trying to look into his thoughts as he was silent in all the places and all the service that he is about for nine months' time. And then the boy appears and he looks at the boy and his first words are, John. And the the audience watches it and they're like, oh, John, that's the boy. No, he has to write that. He has to write the name John. What's his first words? Blessed. Praise. It's not about John. It's not about Zechariah. It's not about Elizabeth. It's about the Lord. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. The hope we have In the Lord should fill our mouths with praise. The first time news of hope came to Zechariah, he did not believe. But now that he sees the Lord's work on his behalf, and through this child, ultimately an announcement of his work on behalf of the world, all those who would come to the Lord in faith, he gives thanks to the Lord. Now, here's what's fascinating. This is a first little glimpse of of what Zechariah is doing as he's reciting this song for us. David, King David, way back, that great king a great dynasty, with Solomon after him. David lived long enough to see his own son be coronated, be put on the throne after him as his successor. And here's what it says in 1 Kings 1, verse 48. And the king also said, David, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Does that sound familiar to you? Isn't that what we just read? And here's what he says. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. What does Zechariah see? He sees a son who's doing a work of service, just as Zechariah had done all these years in the temple. And this son is going to announce the coming of the great Davidic king. The Lord promised David a son on the throne. And David's response, when he sees that son, take the throne, David's response was praise. Now what does Zechariah specifically praise the Lord for? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Visited and redeemed. I don't know if you're a note taker, if you're following along in your Bibles and you like to write in it, I would recommend circling those two words. They are the praiseworthy deed of the Lord in the incarnation. This is what God has done in sending the Christ that Zechariah's son is sent to announce, that the Lord has visited and the Lord has redeemed. For those who hope, in the Lord. The presence of the Lord is salvation. It's because the Lord has visited that the Lord has redeemed. The the name John, the name of this child who would be born, whose business it was to announce the coming of the Lord, the name John in Hebrew means the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious because he has visited and redeemed. The gracious presence of the Lord with his people, and he's with them with strength. The Lord is leveraging his strength for their redemption. Here's how he says it. Verse 69, the next words. And and he's visited and redeemed and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. A horn is a symbol of salvation strength. You can see a horn on a great beast in the field, and you can see that that great beast has these great horns as a symbol of strength. It can work strength with the horns, and it can also just strut around and raise up the horns, and the beasts that don't have them cower, right? And the Lord has raised up a horn in the line of David. The Lord is sending his strength through the line of King David. Now, to go back and find out why that's good news, we have to consider God's promise to David. And so we have to go back to, to the God's covenant with David. And that covenant was spoken by a man named Nathan. Nathan was a prophet, and he delivers God's promise to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 13. And, and Nathan gives to David this hope. says, and I, the Lord speaking through his mouthpiece Nathan, will give you rest from all your enemies. Friends, that was good news to David. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. That's crucial. It's an essential part of the promise. He'll make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father's. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and will establish his kingdom. So he's going to establish Solomon. And he's going to establish Rehoboam. And he's going to establish the kings that come after. He shall build a house for my name. Now that was specifically fulfilled in Solomon. That King David didn't build a house for the Lord. He didn't establish the temple. But Solomon would build a house for the name of the Lord, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Solomon didn't do that one. You see, there is a part of God's promise to Nathan that has been fulfilled in his son and the sons that came after him. But Solomon died, and Solomon, as wise as he was, was often a fool, and he was definitely a sinner. And all the kings after him, oh my goodness, Rehoboam, he was a fool just right out the gate and the kingdom divided. And so many of the kings were wicked who came after him. And the Lord wiped out the throne, sent the people into exile and never really established it again. What about the kingdom That is forever. You see, there's a two-part promise. The Lord will make David a house. He'll give him offspring on a throne. And that's immediately filled with Solomon, David's son, and those who came after him. But the promise continues with the establishment of David's kingdom forever. The Lord will make David's throne forever. And the Lord revealed his intention in coming years. It became clear through the prophets that would come after. Not only would David's dynasty never end But from David would come an actual forever king. It's not that that there would be fathers having sons in in a a line of kings forever. It's that there would come a day in which a son would be born. And his kingdom would be a forever king. Or as the scriptures say, he shall reign forever and ever. What is the Lord doing here in Luke in calling us back to remember the, the house of his servant David? Zechariah is announcing the coming of that very king. That king is here, not just one in the line of David, but the one who will reign forever according to the promise that has been awaited the whole time and up to this moment not fulfilled. We too, like Zechariah, have heard a great promise of hope. How will we respond? Will we respond with praise? Or will we respond with unbelief? Listen to Revelation 11. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And is our response, how shall we know this? Or is our response, oh Lord God, be blessed. Your kingdom has come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We believe today, the reason why we gather on this Sunday morning is because it's resurrection morning. And we remember that he is risen and he is seated on his throne and he reigns today, forever and ever. Our hope is in the Lord. Our hope is that he has visited humanity, and he's kept his promise to David. There is a forever king who has come to work salvation with his great might, and Jesus, whom John has come to announce, is that king. Do you believe it? If you believe it, you don't just say, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The response is praise. The response is a rising worship in the people of God. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. So what has this king come to do? What has he come to do? And the second thing that we look at in this song is that the Lord has promised mercy. And this just adds, yes, he's fulfilled a promise. Praise be to God, right? But then we we find out more about what that promise is and we say, oh, blessed be the Lord. He's increasing worship now. The Lord has promised mercy, verse 70 as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that that we should be saved from our enemies and, and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy promised to the fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Advent means arriving. The word advent means coming. The coming of the king is in accordance with the word of the prophets. The Lord has announced what he would do and then he did it and then we praise him that he announced it, and he did just as he said he would do. We've already seen Nathan speak of the covenant with David. Now, John the Baptist has been born, and the, he and, the, and, and John the Baptist is the greatest of the prophets. Why is John the Baptist the greatest of the prophets? Well, all the prophets that came before spoke a word that was the word of God spoken to him, and spoken then by him. But here's John the Baptist who has come. And he is a forerunner of the king himself. He announces not just the word of God, but the word made flesh has come to dwell among us. What do the prophets announce? The first thing that the prophets announce is that we should be saved. He says that he, He's he's worked, according to the holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies. The Lord is rescuing from enemies. There are such a thing as enemies of the Lord, and there are such a thing as enemies to his people. How many times did the book of 12, that we just got done studying for 12 weeks, these minor prophets speak of rescue from enemies? Even after oracles of judgment upon the people of God, oracles of judgment and exile, the Lord always spoke of a time of hope and peace. Yes, judgment. Yes, a call to repentance. Yes, a discipline from the Lord upon the people of God, but also a message of hope and peace. Here's an example, Joel Three sixteen. We've been looking at three sixteens a lot lately. We've got John three sixteen. We've got first John three sixteen, and now we've got Joel three sixteen. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earthquake. Just so you know, the context that's being spoken of there is judgment. That's that's not good news when a lion is roaring and heavens and earthquake for people like you and I. That's terrifying. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. The Lord is coming in judgment, but the Lord himself is a refuge for all that would take refuge in him by faith. For all those who run, for all those who scatter, for all those who do battle, for all those who try to put up defenses against the Lord, he will shake and he will roar. All those who run to the Lord for his mercy, for his peace, as a stronghold, he is a refuge. We see that the Lord is a refuge against enemies. They will be saved from enemies. And then in verse 72, his purpose is to show mercy. Show mercy according to covenant. He's been saying the whole time that he is showing mercy by his covenant. This is the mercy that was promised to the fathers according to the covenant of the Lord. In Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist calls the people to repentance. And that repentance that he calls the people to be baptized with a baptism of repentance. John the Baptist, by the way, is the one who is, is announced to Zechariah, Zechariah has this boy, and his name is John. We'll come to call him John the Baptist because he he went into the wilderness, and he was faithful, and he grew up, and he began to preach a message of repentance. And that message of repentance was in light of the covenant of the Lord. that They had broken covenant, the people had. But part of the covenant, the third part of the covenant, was a, a promise of redemption for those who would return to the Lord in repentance. A people of faith must come before a holy God, and must repent of sin because the Lord has promised. And he's commanded that we repent. But here's the thing. Without the promise of the Lord to show mercy, Mark alluded to this in the prayer of confession this morning. Without the promise of the Lord to show mercy, for a sinner to come before a holy God would be one of the most terrifying, might I say, Foolish things for a sinner to do. But the Lord has promised mercy. And so we come. Because the Lord has spoken righteousness and He's revealed what the good way is, and we have not walked in it but have rebelled. Do we believe that? If we believe that, we ought to be scared. But if the Lord has also spoken mercy for those who come to him for grace, what ought we do there? Not be scared, but return to him for mercy and grace. And this is the message of John the Baptist. Because of mercy, repentance is no longer cause for fear. Repentance is actually cause for rejoicing. Repentance sounds like salvation. He's visited us with grace and mercy. I want to take you to verses 72 and 73, and we're going to see something truly fascinating. The Lord has come to show mercy that's promised to the fathers and to remember his holy covenant. And not just any covenant, the specific covenant, verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might, be, might serve him without fear. What is that promise? What is the covenant to Abraham? If you go to Genesis chapter 22, and I encourage you, like these are things that are often unfamiliar to us. Write this down in your margin or in your notes. Genesis chapter 22, beginning at verse 16. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Did you hear that? Did you hear what he said? By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord. We're going to come back to that. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son. When when Abraham brought his son, according to God's command, Isaac to be sacrificed, then the Lord sent a ram that Isaac would not die, but rather be redeemed. Creating an image for us of the giving of a son and then the giving of a substitute because you've not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and you will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham has shown faith in the Lord by trusting the Lord with his life and with the life and possible death of his only son, Isaac. The Lord responds then to Abraham's faith with one of the most shocking statements in Scripture. I hope you caught it. The Lord swears by himself. Friends, when you and I do that, it's called taking the Lord's name in vain. If we swear to God, there's there's nothing higher to go to. There's no appeal to a greater authority by which we might be released from our vain curse. Why is it a curse? Why is swearing a curse? You're calling a curse on yourself if you don't do it. Unless there's someone up there. Something higher than that which we have sworn to to come and rescue us from our oath. But the Lord God, one time in all of Scripture, says, I swear by my self. redemption. Friends, this message is a message about hope. And if the Lord God swears by the sun and the moon, so be it. I can swear by the sun and the moon and I have no control over the sun and the moon, what they do in the mornings or the evenings or forever. But the Lord does. And he can just make the sun and the moon do something different and then the Lord could do something different too. But if the Lord swears by himself, Friends, this is an oath we can hope in. The Lord has sworn, and the Lord's covenant is absolute. Notice that Zechariah speaks of salvation as though it's already accomplished, but Jesus hasn't given the sacrifice. The people are still under sin, awaiting the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah hasn't even come yet. Just the one who would announce the coming of the Messiah has come. But for Zechariah, it's done. It's as though the king himself, that is Jesus, who is not yet born, has already accomplished all the work of the Lord's own oath. Friends, that is the nature of hope in the Lord. It's absolute confidence that it is finished. Zechariah had nine months to reflect on the promises of the Lord. And on this day, he responds, nine months later, he responds with a confidence of faith. We today not only have the Lord's own oath, His covenant to redeem, we have the full record of the gospel itself. We've seen Jesus, the Christ. We've seen His righteous life. We've seen His sacrificial death. We've seen His victorious resurrection and ascension to the throne of heaven where He reigns today. We've seen it. and We know His promise to return to bring His people of faith to Himself. Our hope is, is in the Lord who has spoken and the Lord who has worked and the Lord who has promised mercy according to his word. Do you have hope this morning? What is the response of hope? Well, how will we know? What is the response of hope? Worship. Worship. It turns out that's the whole purpose of salvation. Look at verse 74. Would you come to this most important theme of Zechariah's song? Or 74, that we, being delivered from our, the hand of our enemies, that we, as a consequence of redemption and salvation and rescue, that we might serve the Lord without fear. The redeemed embody worship. We exist as a people. The, the work of redemption was doing something. It wasn't merely saving, it was crafting a people. Not destroyed, but delivered. Yes, that's true. That we might serve the Lord. And this is also true. We have become, by faith, the sacrifice in which the Lord delights. There's no more sacrifice to be burnt in the temple because Jesus is the final sacrifice and we, our, our salvation is redeemed and secure so our lives become that which in which the lord delights friends that's romans 12:1 our lives are living sacrifices that are the delight of the lord it's what he was doing in redemption he wasn't just saving us he was creating worshipers of his great name and this has been true from the beginning the lord ransomed israelites out of egypt that they might gather to him at the mountain and worship him. It says that he called his son out of Egypt that they might worship him in the gathering at the mountain. He established the people in the promised land, ultimately in Jerusalem, with the purpose that there would be a temple in the center. And as we looked at just a few weeks ago, that temple is in the center that the people's very lives would center on worship. This is the purpose of God creating a people. And all of this worship, all of this service of the Lord that he would delight in us and we would enjoy him forever is all without fear. Our hope is not merely that our lives are rescued, but that our lives are rescued to enjoy God forever. The Lord has become our delight, even as he delights in our rescue. It's this beautiful, glorious, life-giving delight between the Lord and his people. And all of this worship, verse 75, is in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Listen to the way that Zephaniah puts it. In Zephaniah 3.15, he says, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst and you'll, you'll, never forget, you'll never fear evil. The Lord is in our midst so that we might delight in him, so that we might take refuge in him and so we might enjoy him forever. Friends, hear this. The greatest evil that I fear in my life is not enemies from without, but the enemy that is within. The greatest enemy of Jeremiah 5 is my sin. It's destructive to my soul. It's destructive to my way of thinking. It's destructive to my own walk in life. And it destroys my enjoyment of my greatest delight, the Lord himself. And the Lord, who has chosen to dwell in the midst of his people, destroys our enemies. Friends, there is no more cause to fear evil not even to fear that I would continue to sin forever. I've thought about that. I don't want to do this forever. Make it stop. What the Lord has begun, he will complete people. He's making a righteous people who can actually delight in him. He's purchased a way by which we might actually enjoy forever in his presence then we see what is a wonderful intimate moment in the song look at verse 76 he's going along singing a song and then brand new father just named the kid and you child this isn't an idea of a child this isn't a concept this isn't a, a future hope that maybe one of these days when I'm a dad. This is a father standing next to a mother looking at a child. And you, John, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. What a powerful moment. Zechariah's new little child is the end of a long wait since the end of Malachi the last Old Testament prophet, 400 years before. And and Zechariah looks down and looks at John and says, one prophet away. And you're the prophet of the Most High. Here's how Malachi ends. Malachi 4, 5, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And John is Elijah the prophet. He comes before the great and awesome day of the Lord. As angel Gabriel himself announced in Luke 1.16, and he will turn, that is, the one that, that John has come to announce who is coming, Jesus, Jesus will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him. I'm sorry, this is of John. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts. This is the business of John the Baptist. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient, to the wisdom of the just. You can hear repentance taking place in the ministry of the prophet John. And to make ready for the Lord A people prepared. How do you get ready to meet a king? You get dressed up, obviously. right? And you figure out all the formalities that you're supposed to say. Obviously, he's a king. That's not what John came to do. John says the way you prepare to meet this king is on your knees in repentance and expectation of grace. John is the last of the prophets because now the Lord himself has spoken by his son. John is the last. And now we have Jesus. Hebrews chapter one opens this way. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And he's spoken just as John to give, verse 77, knowledge of salvation to his people, in the forgiveness of their sins. Salvation is directly related to the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, forgiveness of sins is linked to rescue from enemies. And what we're given isn't just salvation. We're given knowledge of salvation. What's that mean? Well, knowledge is knowledge that is intimate, of having taken hold of something that is to be possessed and enjoyed. We have been granted salvation. It's true. But by grace, salvation has become for us a precious possession, a delight, something that is a context for worship to the grace giver who has given us salvation to possess intimately. In Matthew chapter one, verse 21, the angel says, she that is Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins, the purpose of a Jesus is to give us intimate knowledge of salvation. The passage ends with a delightful image, an image that we need to go from this place with in the end of the chapter in verse or in verse seventy eight. It says, "Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high." In Luke 9.2, later on in this gospel, it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Zechariah refers to Malachi's son of righteousness. In Malachi 4, it says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, so rise with healing in his wings. And and what, what Zechariah is saying is with the birth of this child, he is going to announce the sunrise is coming. For weary travelers that are traveling in darkness, there is a day coming. What does a sunrise abolish? A sunrise abolishes the the death of night. Enemies who lurk under cover of darkness. Sin that that, that plays in the, the veil of darkness. And confusion and fear for all who dwell in darkness. But what is the way of light? The way of light is life. The way of light is peace on earth. Righteousness is revealed. We can serve the Lord with a clear-eyed joy. And friends, that's the application. We are a people of hope. The Son has come, and He's risen upon us, and He's brought salvation, and this is our hope. This is our Advent blessing. What is celebrated if you go through this passage, and I would encourage you to do this during the course of this week, say, what, when he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, he then recounts what is blessed about God. What has he done? The Lord has visited. He's visited salvation. Salvation from enemies. He's shown mercy. He's given a child who will prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord brings salvation and forgiveness, and he's secured a way of peace. Imagine Zechariah. The child that he has waited a lifetime for. I mean, I I think it's probably true. For Elizabeth and Zechariah, they could not imagine a greater blessing of the Lord than that they in their old age would finally have a child. And when Zechariah gets what they've longed for their entire lives, what does he give praise for? It's not John. It's not their child. He sings a praise in praise of the son of righteousness. Because Zechariah has found a hope that is greater than merely a child. He's found a king. Just like John the Baptist, Zechariah, John's father, is clear that salvation, righteousness, and hope isn't found in John. John was clear about it. Zechariah is clear about it. Salvation is found in Jesus, who is the forever king. My prayer for us during the course of this Advent season, as we celebrate the coming of our Lord, as we, we long for and await the coming again of our Lord, that we would, we would do so with an expectation that he is actually our singular hope. Heavenly Father, I thank you for grace. Grace means that you give, you are generous. You come and you you satisfy, you save. All of this is your work. Lord, we praise you. We join Zechariah in blessing your great name. We thank you for the gift of John. We thank you for giving a, a husband and a wife a child. We thank you that that child was the prophet of the Most High. And that you have given to us, your son. But I pray that you would cause us to hope in you. Cause us to hate the darkness. Cause us to hate the way of hiding in darkness. Finding ourselves as, as enemies of the cross. Rather than those who delight in the, the raising up of the son in our place. Lord, I pray that we would become a people of repentance, perhaps even one this morning who would repent for the first time and turn to you in faith and so be saved. And that for all of us, that we would never move on from that moment, but only to worship. Create worship as a response to your great grace this morning, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.